0: Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode ninety of Hack to Start. This episode features Christina Cordova, the first business development hire at Stripe, the payments infrastructure for the Internet. Tyler and I want to invite Christina onto the show to share her story as an entrepreneur, what it's like being the first business development hire, and how she's helping to lead the way in building and growing Stripe.
1: Christina was previously the first employee at Pulse, where she led partnerships with brands like The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and more. Today, Christina is focused on building and managing the business development team at Stripe, which focuses on user-facing product partnerships, strategic partnerships with brands like Twitter, Pinterest, and Kickstarter, and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it.
0: Hey Christina, thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: Thanks, happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we're super excited to uh, to have you on board and to have the chance to speak with you today. Tyler and I are both huge fans of Stripe. So before we find out more about what you're doing there, let's let's start off by learning a bit more about you. Where are you from and and what did you study and how did your passion for entrepreneurship really start to develop?
2: I'll start from the beginning. So originally, I'm from uh, Glendale, which is kind of a suburb of Los Angeles. I grew up there pretty much all my life. Um, And then uh, I went to Stanford and studied political science, because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was a uh, short lived dream, I guess. So I I took my first introduction to American law class when I was in school. And I, I just could not stand being in class. It was so boring. So at some point, I Decided, well, you know, if I'm going to have to be a lawyer, then I'm going to have to take a lot of these classes. And then I'm going to have to go to law school. And then I'm going to have to spend a few years, you know, as kind of like some lowly associate in a law firm, like, you know, making copies or something like that. So um, it it just did not sound like something I was actually going to like. And I think coupled with the fact that I'm a very impatient person, I was just not interested in waiting a long time to do what I thought was going to potentially be something uh, that's great a lot of lawyers do really great work, but I just was not willing to wait for that. So it really kind of started when I had this realization, I think my junior year or so in college. And I had a friend who was um, interning for a startup in Palo Alto, so pretty close to campus. And she was about to go abroad and said, Hey, like they're looking for someone to kind of replace me, would you be interested? So I gave up a like, paying job that I had while I was in school to work for free for this startup called Tapulous in 2009. Tapulous was a mobile gaming company. It was, you know, effectively kind of like the, I don't know, pre like Rovio or or Zynga of its day. And they were building mobile games before there was even an app store. So it was really kind of the first time that anyone had seen these types of apps really take off and do particularly well. So um, it was a really great way to see that from the ground up. And um, I was able to come in and just do a lot of stuff that I had no business doing. And that was really fun and exciting. And And that was kind of it for me. And I decided that I just wanted to be in in tech. I didn't really know that it was startups at that point, but uh, it was. And that's where I got started.
1: So after the startup experience, you actually had a brief period with Google. How did you create the opportunity to uh, work at Google? And what was that transition like from the startup to working for a more established company?
2: Yeah. So um, during my internship at Tapulous, I was like, oh, I really love tech. So maybe I should go work for a big tech company because that will be something that kind of adds to my experience in a big way. So I applied for a role at Google and it was kind of one of those right out of school positions. They don't even like when you get the job, they don't even tell you like what your role is going to be. It could be in like marketing or HR or communications or sales. Um, So it really could have been anything. And I still accepted the job regardless, because I was just like, Google, it's the greatest company in the world. Why wouldn't I want to work there? And um, I started, I was pretty miserable, pretty quickly. So I, I realized that it was just not the right fit for me. And I remember asking my boss at the time, like, how long would it take me to get, you know, a different role within Google? Because maybe it was the role and not necessarily the company itself. And um, they said, well, you'd have to be in your position for at least a year before you move on to something else. Which now working at a company is totally reasonable. But at the time, um, I was like, well, you know, a year is way too long for me. Again, the impatience is, is coming back into my <laughs> my stories. So I decided to leave, I think, during my seventh week so that I could still have like health insurance for another month. Um, <laughs> and I started um, at Pulse literally the same day. So I was driving off the Google campus at like four o'clock after turning in my badge. And I drove into the parking lot of of um, the Pulse office, which was a VC's office, actually, uh, that we were sharing with like a bunch of other companies. And that's when I kind of started my first day at at Pulse. So um, I I realized Google was not for me pretty quickly.
1: That's really cool story. So, So talk to us a little bit about Pulse and how you got the job to work there.
2: Yeah. So my senior year, I was actually taking a class in the Persuasive Technology Lab, which is a lab within the computer science department that's led by uh, B.J. Fogg, who's um, a really great professor and ended up being an advisor for my thesis. And when I was taking that class, I was as I said, kind of working at the startup and doing a bunch of things. Um, and I was kind of that annoying student who would email the TA like the day after class and say, hey, you haven't posted the homework. And I'm like hoping to get this homework done really quickly. Um, and, and I just kept kind of like pestering him. Little did I know that at the time, my TA was building Pulse kind of on the side while also being a graduate student and teaching this class with BJ Fogg. And he one day like, hey, we built this app. And we just pushed it live and we've gotten a few hundred thousand downloads and it's going really well. And we need someone to like help us with the, with the business side. And it seems like you know a lot about mobile from your time at Tapulous and, and in this class, which was specifically focused on like persuasive technology and mobile. And I was like, OK, well, I'd be happy to find you someone to help with this kind of like extra kind of non-technical work that you have. And so, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of people, I got like 10 people who are interested in working for them in line for them to interview. And they were like, so actually, we don't want any of these people, we, we want to work with you. <laughs> and we want you to come work at, at Pulse. And this was kind of actually right before I had decided to work at Google, you know, instead of taking a vacation after I finished school, I decided to work for, for Pulse and just kind of help them in this like month period between when I finished school and when I started at Google. And so I did that. And, you know, again, it was another role where I just got a lot of responsibility very, very quickly, did everything from partnerships to data analytics to marketing community, hired a bunch of people in like, support, management, marketing, that kind of stuff. And when I went to Google and realized Google was not the fit for me, I went running back (laughs) to pulse. So uh, it made it really easy for me to kind of Make that decision. Um, one, because I had already kind of had a, an experience working there. And then two, I, I knew the founder from, from school, and that was certainly helpful. So, you know, the Pulse experience, I think, was pretty great for me in the sense that we were able to grow that company from three people on a desk in our VC's office to, I think, almost 30 employees um, that were mostly engineering and product. And once it got to a point where it was very clear that the company was growing quickly, um, but needed more. Content for the app. So, Pulse, if, if people aren't aware, is a mobile news reading app for, um, at the time, it was iPhone, Android, and iPad. We were trying to launch really, really quickly um, across all the different platforms. And then we also needed a bunch of content to serve up to users. And the only way we were going to get that content was by doing content partnerships with folks like USA Today and Bloomberg News and the BBC and all of these folks. And that was an experience where you know, I was walking into conversations and meetings that um, I had never done before and was trying to convince these um, people to do something that originally uh, they probably wouldn't have wanted to do, which is give away all of their content for free. So uh, that's kind of where I started. And then you know, as pulse grew, it was clear that like we had all of these content partnerships, we needed people who could actually analyze the data of what people were reading and share that data back with the publishers. But we had no like data analytics team, so I learned how to pull the data and make shiny reports and work with our what soon then became a data team to create a dashboard for publishers to read all of this data. You know do. Press when we didn't have a PR firm. Um, so, just kind of a do whatever's necessary approach to building that company.
1: So, as you mentioned, you, you guys had partnerships and publishers like the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and much more. So, how did you approach them to be a part of the Pulse platform?
2: So, I started small, which was really key. I think if we had gone into conversations with uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and all of these partners right away probably wouldn't have been good for us. So, we started out by really trying to create a domino effect around these partners. So, we would go to for example, um a content partner like TechCrunch which had written about Pulse and we I think it was like MG Siegler at the time when he worked there. We were like, "So, hey, like thanks for writing about us. Can we have that TechCrunch content for the Pulse app?" And he was like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah, I don't even know if he had like the um ability to like say yes for the time, but it was good enough for us. And so he gave us a special feed of their content. And then we basically took that from TechCrunch and we went to like, you know, read, write, reb and like GigaOM and all the other tech blogs. And they were like, oh, is TechCrunch working with you? And and we said, yeah. And they were like, okay, well, I guess we should work with you too. And then we leveled that up to then go to Wired, which is a Connie NAS publication and historically very, very difficult to work with because they operate more as a traditional content company than like a tech blog would. And um, Wired we went into the pitch meeting with Wired and we were like, so we're working with TechCrunch and GigaOM and all these other companies that are in your space and, you know, taking all of your traffic away <laughs> effectively. And they said, yes. So we then took that and we said, okay, now we're going to go to all the other Conde NAS publications and say, hey, we're already working with Wired. So it would be really easy for you to work with us as well. So it was just kind of this constant game of, of, of leveling up with the partners that we were working with and just trying to really craft a pitch that was focused. On what they were trying to do. So in some of these cases, they wanted more traffic to their websites, which we could articulate that we would offer. In some cases, they were just trying to develop their audience and you know attract younger readers or older readers or some like specific segment of the market, which we could then make a pitch for. So I think we always looked at it as you know how could we craft a story that would them to work with us using data, using product insights, or using their competitors and the movements that they're competitors were making with us. So um, yeah, th- th- that was kind of how we played it with them.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a really great approach. So between this experience and seeing a team grow from three to 30 employees, what was the biggest lessons that you've learned uh, throughout this experience?
2: So I would say one would be always think about what you're doing with an external partner from their perspective. I think a lot of people walk into a room and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to do. And it's really not about that. It's what the other person wants, the other party, and trying to craft what you want and what they want to be ultimately the same thing at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people don't kind of approach partnerships in that way. And so I like to be particularly partner friendly while understanding that at the end of the day, if we can't create a partnership that at the beginning is fruitful for both parties, then it's probably not going to be worth it at the end of the day. I think the other thing is... No one really knows what they're doing. So I had no idea what I was doing. You know, at the time, our founders would probably say today that like they had no idea what they were doing. (laughs) This includes like executive hires that you bring in from other companies. They have no idea what they're doing. You know, we're all doing this like for the first time, all at the same time together. So in many ways, I think you have to trust your gut, the data that you have available to you and, you know, fake it till you make it as as much as possible. (laughs)
1: No. I like that. So you've also put together an awesome site of incredible women in engineering roles. Why did you decide to create this site and, and what have the outcomes been since launching it?
2: The reason why I created that was really because I think while recruiting is often talked about as like the top priority for, for every founder and every early employee, I think recruiting women in particular is, is rarely on that like the top of that priority list. Um, despite the fact that it gets you to your end goal, um, if hiring is your is your end priority. I think it's really hard to prioritize just in general, like diversity hiring when you're resource constrained, because I think it's really easy to say like, hey, the site's going down and we need to prioritize that. Or, hey, we don't have enough users and we need to prioritize growth. And hiring women is never kind of the most important thing for a lot of these companies. And so they're not going to put a lot of effort into hiring you know, as much effort that they would put into, let's say, fundraising as they would into hiring women. So um, I think a lot of that's because it's, it's granted there are not as many women in engineering roles as there are men. And so it makes it harder to find women. I think the other issue is that in early stage startups, a lot of people hire other people who are very much like them in gender or in um, the schools that they went to or other things, just because you're hiring people that you can probably convince, which are likely your friends who are likely very similar to you. So as someone who joined uh, a few early stage startups, I really understand how valuable it can be for people to have the opportunity to make huge impact. In a fast growing company, uh, the lessons that they can learn, the financial outcomes that are part of that decision making. And I think the one thing I've been really lucky to do is find companies where partnerships roles are are crucial at a very early stage. Pretty much at every startup, engineering roles are crucial at that early stage. And so I think it's easier to, if if you're looking to hire women, to look for people in those roles very, very early. I guess that in combination with the fact that I talked to a number of founders who were like, yeah, I just can't find a lot of women in it who are in engineering. Um, It just kind of makes it look like it's much harder than it actually is. And so I started creating this list for a few founders who had come to me and said like, hey, do you know other women in engineering? And I would just like pass them along this Google Doc and they would be like, oh, like, interesting. Um, so I already knew a few women engineers who had gotten hired off of being found on that list originally. So um, I just kind of created it purely out of that. And and I was like, well, what about all the founders who are not asking me for my thoughts or my opinions on this? Where are they finding <laughs> women in, in engineering? Or are they even looking at all? And that was kind of the question. So I just decided to release that list and make it public. And, you know, the hope there was that it would make the availability of women in engineering roles a little bit more transparent and stop people from having a conversation uh, that was that always ended in like, oh, we don't recruit for women specifically because it's too hard or because we're too busy or we don't know where they are. Um, A lot of people just create a lot of excuses and I think that list makes it really easy to really just ignore the excuses and just get to work on hiring those women.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's an awesome uh, initiative. So right now you're you're currently helping to lead business development and partnerships at Stripe, where you were one of the first hires uh, on that side. Sorry, the first hire on that side uh, when the company was around 30 people. So can you tell us a little bit more about Stripe and how you created the opportunity to work there?
2: Sure. So um, I, I can start out, I guess, with what I thought Stripe was at the time, which was very kind of like developer-oriented tool for payments. That's kind of what my original thought of Stripe was. And that was based on an impression that I got from Patrick, our, our CEO, who I originally met at a barbecue in Palo Alto with a bunch of other like people who had worked at startups who were all kind of living in Palo Alto at the time. And so I just got to know Patrick as a friend first. Although now I probably suspect he's trying to recruit me. <laughs> but in any case, I got to know Patrick really well. We talked a lot about startups, their challenges. And you know, as we were both working at companies that were effectively about the same size, I think in a lot of ways you're, you're focused on the same things. Things like recruiting, things like make, making sure that you're cultivating a really great culture um, and all those kinds of things. Um, and then I really got to know a lot more about Stripe from my conversations with Patrick and just how he has a much broader vision than I originally had of, of Stripe when I first heard about it. And it was just creating or giving everyone the opportunity to create businesses online around the world. And I think, you know, even really great entrepreneurs and founders in a lot of different parts of the world would love to create access to their products and their services. Uh, but they're unable to because they can't charge for them or because it's really hard to just even incorporate or, you know, do a number of other things that just create all these barriers. And so you have a lot of founders that rather than starting businesses in their own countries, like come to the US and try to start something here. And, you know, it's still really, really difficult here as well. But I think in a lot of ways, Stripe makes that easier. So if you look at some of our like key customers, like Kickstarter and Lyft, you know, they have to both like accept payments and then pay out all of these like create or drivers, and that can be a huge like, operational and finance like, hassle to do. We create tools to make that easier so that companies like Lyft and Kickstarter can scale really quickly. And I think about Stripe in the context of like solving business problems versus solving payments problems at the end of the day. So that's kind of really where I got that sense of, of Stripe very early on. And one day, Patrick just asked me on Gchat, so like, what would you think about working on partnerships at uh, Stripe? And I originally said, like, I have no idea what <laughs> what that would mean, because I, I didn't quite understand how much partnerships could be leveraged at a company like Stripe, because I was used to working in those roles for consumer companies rather than companies focused on the business market. So I initially kind of rejected that notion, and Greg who was our CTO, eventually sent me this very, very long email that described all the reasons why I should work at Stripe. And at the end of it, it was like, you know, you don't even have to like interview, just come talk to Billy. And he'll, he'll tell you more about all the business stuff because everyone I knew at Stripe at the time was an engineer. So perhaps they were not as clearly giving me a, a good sense of what the business side was. So then um, I met with Billy, who is our chief business officer. And Billy had um, a lot of foresight into what all of the business challenges were going to be for Stripe and, and how partnerships can help solve those. That's when I decided that I should interview for Stripe and that I really wanted to join.
0: That's awesome. It's a great story. So, as part of your role, um, you know, leading these these partnerships um, with brands like FreshBooks, GoDaddy, Pinterest, Twitter, how do you approach, you know, dealing with companies of, of this scale, especially as a as a newer company yourself?
2: Yeah. So, um, I think you have to have a very different. Like look at, at partnerships, and I think most people do. Um, you know, it's really easy, for example, to work at a company like Google and you know approach other companies that you'd be interested in in working with, because everyone's going to pick up your phone call, everyone's going to answer your email, um, and that was very much not the case for Stripe. We we're very much you know kind of knocking down doors as as much as we possibly could, and just having initial conversations with folks. I mean, I remember conversations very early on where people would confuse us for Square because we're also a payments company that starts with an S. So, um, you know, you'd have to just kind of like, in, in one case, just educate the market as to what you even are and what you have to offer, which is a barrier that like, you know, a Google does not have to do or does not have to cross or something that Facebook doesn't have to cross, right? Um, so you have to do that first and then you have to figure out exactly what you have to bring to the table that these kind of legacy players in the space don't have to offer. And for us, that's always product. And for every company I've I've worked for, like... know, I always look at it as if the product is not meeting the right needs of the partner, and if we are not able to build things that make it worth our partner's while to work with us, then it's, it's probably not going to be a really good fit. There's only so much convincing you can do. And I think in Stripe's world, we always lead with product first at the end of the day. So really, we had to articulate what it was that Stripe had to offer to these partners, and how that really met their needs at the end of the day. So In the case of, you know, a Facebook or a Twitter, which works with us, you know, they really want to create a platform for commerce, onboard merchants really quickly and enable them to sell their products really quickly. So we build products like Relay that enable those partners to do that. And so it's a combination of making sure that you can build a really great product and then also meet the needs of the partner through the right deal structure, the right terms, and ensure that not only can they be successful, but so can their merchants and so can their merchants' customers.
0: That's really that's really good insight. So you've you've also uh, you know helped build uh, over the years the business development team at Stripe. So what do you look for in individuals, and and how do you build? You know you know how do you approach building such an awesome team within Stripe?
2: Yeah, so we have a team of about five people, which feels like a lot in, um, <laughs> in such a short period of time. Um, I would say one of the things I would look at as, as a resource first would be a really great blog post from Elad Gill, um, who's actually a Stripe investor, and it's called um, How to Hire Great Business Development People. So it's exactly what the title suggests. Um, really great blog post on that stuff. In addition to that, I think you have to make sure that you're testing for the right capabilities in the interview process. So for us, that's, you know, the ability to kind of source and structure first of a kind strategic partnerships. So assuming you have no playbook, assuming there has been no one who has done this before you, are you able to kind of structure a deal that makes sense for both you and and the partner? Two, we look for people who are really analytical and can actually get things done. So sometimes that means working with finance. Sometimes that means working with product. And someone who can be analytical and understand market dynamics is very important. Also, someone who is creative, has the ability to think about new partnership opportunities for Stripe that we have not explored yet is pretty crucial. And then, you know, obviously, someone who can ensure the success of the partnerships that we do launch, it's certainly not just about, for example, signing on the dotted line, and then just moving on to the next deal, you always have to make sure that the deal that you have done is really important, and actually gets to the final stage of execution that it launches, that after launch, it's actually something that was worthwhile and met the expectations that you had when you signed the deal. So understanding that we have to bring in people who have a lot of really great follow through is really important. And then, you know, outside of those core capabilities, which we try to measure through the interview process, I also look for someone who is vibrant, persuasive, and someone who's had to work hard. You know, as I mentioned, it's it's easy to work at some companies in BD when a prospective partner will always take your call or meeting. I think Stripe is at a very different place uh, than it was three years ago, but we're still not in a place where anyone will just side with you solely due to the fact that we are Stripe. And so we need to make sure that we work with people who are understanding that like in some cases you're going to have to be the underdog in a deal process and do that well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm sure your typical day has also changed over the past three years, but but what does that look like for you and sort of what's next for Stripe over the next few months?
2: Sure. So um, every day is a bit different. I'm sure a lot of people say that. But um, we have meetings with partners, prospective partners. um, So a lot of that kind of early pitching is is still part of the process. We have a lot of internal meetings where our partnerships play a larger role. So with products like Relay or Connect, those are products that are very partner oriented. And so we have a lot of input as to the roadmap and, and how those end up going. I do one-on-ones with the people who are on my team on a weekly basis. So just making sure that the deals that they're working on are moving along and that they're well supported. And then I try to block off a few hours a day for like individual work time and doing things like, you know, planning and a lot of internal communications around like how our partnerships work and what are the details when we launch them because they can affect other teams like support and sales and those kinds of things. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of everything.
1: That's amazing. So what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded to use lately?
2: Yeah, so I would say I've been downloading a lot of apps in the food category. One would be Caviar, which has actually been around for a while. It's now owned by Square, but they have this like feature for, I believe, lunch and dinner Monday through Friday called Fast Bites. So you can effectively get like a burrito or like a small number of things within 15 minutes. They have like people on bikes riding around the city with food and then they just like drop it off outside your door. So it's just super cool for when you want something really quickly and you don't have time to like go out or that kind of stuff. Then the other I would say is Dropbox Paper. So they launched Paper, I think a few months back on web, and they just released their beta for the private beta for their mobile app. And it's just really great for like taking notes, doing to-do lists, all that kind of stuff. And it's a really awesome app.
1: It's amazing. I, I haven't tried Paper yet, but I've heard a lot of really cool things about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's awesome.
1: So do you have any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, either a book, video, or a blog post?
2: Sure. Yeah. I would say um, the things that I read pretty consistently in terms of just general blogs are probably things like Hoodline, which is really great for like San Francisco area news. Um, So, you know, if you care about the world around you, um, all the different neighborhoods around here, different spots to eat, you know, different challenges happening with things like homelessness in the city and that kind of stuff are, are quite fascinating to read there. For tech stuff, I read Hacker News and Tech Meme probably a few times a day. Uh, um, for books, um, I've been reading the Wright Brothers book recently, which is actually pretty crazy when you think about it. Uh, if you don't know the Wright Brothers story, these two brothers who have you know no experience building anything um, <laughs> built uh, the very first plane that could go at long distances. And uh, it was just a story that I think is particularly interesting in a world where I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, you have to like go to coding school, or you need to go learn how to do um, how to how to build software in the context of a degree from Stanford or a degree from MIT or something like that." When you realize back in the day, a lot of people have built really great things um, that really advanced technology without learning it in the confines of a of a classroom or anything like that. And that book is particularly great for that lesson. And I just read generally a fair bit of nonfiction. So um, biographies, that kind of stuff are really interesting to me.
0: Cool. Those are some great recommendations. Definitely have to check out that uh, that story on the Wright Brothers. So do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you like to live by and you think other people should know about?
2: I don't have a lot of personal mottos, I'll be honest. I would say one thing I, I was thinking about recently is, is that as you are at a company, for example, like, like Stripe that has grown from... A very small size to a very large size, I think you have to be constantly thinking about what you're doing and changing that. So I always look at, you know, despite the fact that I've been in the same role effectively for almost three and a half years now, I always look around and I think maybe every six to nine months, are we different? Have we changed as a team what we're doing and how we're doing it? Because Stripe is going to continuously grow. And I think a lot of the people who are really successful at companies like Stripe and other companies have gone through similar processes like Facebook or Google back in the day had to constantly grow and change the way that they were doing things to ensure that as the company was growing, so were they, and that they were growing at the same speed. And you know, I think in a lot of ways, I, I always think about those things so that you know our team and that the people who work here don't get left behind um, by how fast the company can be growing. So that's just kind of one thing I've been thinking about lately.
0: That's a really good point. That's really awesome, Christina. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on the show.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at HackToStart, and sign up for our newsletter
2: to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.